Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix. As always, or often at least, I am joined by Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Howdy, howdy. We've got Alex Kutmos. Lars stole my line, so this is a hello. <laughs> Steven Nunez. Hello. Hey, Steven. And we are joined today by a very special guest that I'm very excited to be chatting with, Catalina Asengo. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Catalina. So Catalina is uh, an engineering manager, newly minted engineering manager, if you don't mind me saying so, at NAV, which is a company based out of Salt Lake City. And you may have caught her talk on GRPC and Elixir at this year's virtual Elixir Comp titled GRPC and Elixir Microservices, a love story. And the topic of GRPC and Elixir Microservices in general is something that is pretty close to my heart. It's actually very related to a lot of the work that Stephen and I had done together at Flatter in School and some of the work that we did for our Elixir Comp workshop. So I think we have many, many questions to dig into. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. But first off, I think one of the things we really love to ask our guests when they come on is tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe just a little bit about how you first got into programming Elixir. So I'm actually a chemical engineer by schooling. I went to Virginia Tech for chemical engineering and graduated and actually worked as a process engineer for a mining company in southern Utah for four years. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking about programming. I had taken some computer science classes while I was studying engineering and couldn't quite forget about it. So then I uh, decided to start kind of learning it on the side. And then I was in between jobs and decided to teach myself how to code. And at that time, I was really in love with Ruby on Rails. So that was like my first love as far as programming languages go. And then I somehow got a job at NAV. I applied and I've been there ever since. After a couple of months of being there, I got introduced to Elixir and got put in a project of translating this Ruby on Rails app into Elixir. And the rest was history. I've been doing Elixir ever since. Kind of lately, a little bit of Go, just because we have plenty of languages at NAV. So Go, Python, Ruby, Elixir, a lot. And hence why GRPC, you know? So yeah, that's how I got started. I really enjoy it. It's my passion. I did a lot of side projects when I first started coding. I just couldn't stop. And now I'm a little bit more relaxed, but I still love it. That actually, yeah, that really resonates with me. Not so much your very impressive background um, as a chemical engineer, because that sounds very difficult. But just sort of like, you know, coming from a a different non-programming background, falling in love with coding, falling in love with Ruby is like very much my experience as well. I did like, I did a programming bootcamp. I was a student at the Flatiron School going back years now. And I felt the same way. As soon as I started writing code every day, I kind of got like obsessed with it. And I was, you know, doing a ton of side projects and writing all the time. And yeah, calmed down a little bit since then. You know, I feel like my day is plenty full with my actual job, but definitely that feeling, especially with Ruby, which is so eloquent and is so, I think, geared towards, especially people coming from non-traditional backgrounds, being able to be really creative with code. And then of course, I also found my way to Elixir. But curious to hear about that y'all are translating a Ruby on Rails app to Elixir. I'm sure that that's a dream that many of us wish we could implement any of those of us working in perhaps legacy rails apps you know without naming any names so what inspired you guys to make that shift and how did you how did you convince or get buy-in to say hey we have this rails app that exists let's rewrite it in i guess phoenix that's right so it actually wasn't my idea because at the time i was only three months into programming So I'm not sure how the buy-in went, but I think this one engineer at our company thought Elixir was really awesome and that it could really improve the latency of our app. This is actually powering the Marketplace app, which is one of our most important. And we, because of the nature of the app, we needed to do a lot of asynchronous stuff. And I think Elixir is pretty great for that. And also it has all the GraphQL. We, at the time, were moving into GraphQL also. 
So and Elixir was pretty great for that. So we decided it was a good idea and it actually did reduce the latency of our application by a lot. And the marketplace loaded a lot faster and improving the user experience at the same time. So it was a great choice. What was it like getting buy-in for Elixir? Like who, how, how did the advocacy happen? Like who was sort of championing it? Did someone just shove it in? Well, how did that Yeah, go? I think once one, once one of the leaders decided that it was a good language to try, it kind of just like got put in there. I'm not sure how like the buy-in worked because when I was there, it was like kind of already decided that it was going to happen. However, we tried to have more Elixir apps and it hasn't been as easy ever since Go's been around, just because a lot of people that came in at this, Go came in around the same time as Elixir and AdNav, and then some people wanted to do Go and then others wanted to do Elixir and some apps were started in Elixir, but then switched to Go. It was kind of a mess at that time. Started in Elixir and switched to Go. Oh, that breaks my heart. Ooh. And then Go stayed forever. So I really well, struggle all- with like, uh, I don't know. I mean, you guys have heard me like complain about Go. And of course, I try not to be too negative. But especially when it comes to just your ability to be productive in a language, I feel so often that my hands are so tied with Go, like even, even running tests, even writing tests, even the ability to just kind of play around and poke at your code. I, I feel so constrained. So to hear that people had both of those options and like actually moved away from Elixir to Go, I would be very curious to, to understand the motivation for that. Not that there aren't things like that was probably better suited for. So that probably plays a role. But doesn't that seem to be a recurring sort of thing? I've seen it in discussions where where people definitely go like, no, but you don't need the Beam. You don't need Elixir. Go has all these things. like Because Go sort of solves concurrency in, uh, I'm not sure I should say similar fashions, but it has concurrency primitives. It's supposed to manage a lot of the similar problem domains that Elixir does. And it seems to have a lot of traction, especially in, for example, infrastructure. So I think the main contender for solving the same problems that Elixir is good at solving seems to be Go, because it isn't Python, it isn't Ruby. If you look at the concurrent distributed systems, keeping things sane and simple, avoiding magic, that sort of thing. Go has sort of the same pragmatic streak, I think while maybe not being as high level and as expressive. I don't get the impression that it's as expressive and I don't think people consider that a feature, not a bug, but I haven't dove into Go, but I, it's sort of a language that seems to be parallel to Elixir in a lot of senses. So I guess that's, that's where some of the competition shows up. I think it's a, a language that it's an easy jump to go to it. If like you come from an imperative background and the fact that concurrency is a first class citizen in the language, it is pretty enticing. This kind of reminds me back in 2015, I read uh, Go in Action and Elixir in Action by Sasha Yer. And I was obviously sold on Elixir, so I, uh, I focused my career on that. But yeah, not to, not to bag too hard on Go, but I did find Go, even for like the simple things, right? Like I could do an IO inspect in Elixir and I could see the entire data structure as nested as it goes, right? I don't need to... Oh, did you want to see something and go? Because like, sorry, you definitely cannot. Yeah, see, it's it's the simple things like that, where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, have, uh, you, you have some power there because it's running natively on the box and you have some concurrence utilities at your disposal. But it's the simple things that keep you sane day to day, right? As, you know, as simple as an IO inspect. And uh, yeah, like, like Sophie said, the, the developer experience in Elixir is just, is just top notch. I'm loving the five minutes of go hate. By the way, this is this is great for okay, me. Okay, we can talk about something. I don't. Else. No, no. I'm I'm not going to add anything. I I'm going to have my deep dive into go again every few months. I come back in and I come out and I'm like, what am I missing? Because this is terrible. But I'm enjoying hearing this. So bravo. And honestly, I have been to go recently, and the hardest part has been debugging i'm used to jump into an elixir console and kind of see what's going on with go yeah you don't able to execute code like it feels so terrible not to be able to execute code what's the point of breakpoints if i can't execute any code or even really introspect on basically anything but anyway as as we said batch and go moving on to some other topics so catalina for those of our listeners who didn't have a chance to catch your excellent talk at ElixirConf this year. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the topic overall? And I think we've got a ton of great questions that we'd love to dig into here. Sure. So 
My Elixir talk was basically introducing what gRPC and protocol buffers are. So for our listeners that don't know what that is, um, gRPC is just a way for apps to communicate. It's built over HTTP2. So you get a lot of the more modern and faster optimized communication. Actually, at first, when I was doing GraphQL and someone told me about gRPC, I was like, oh, no, I have to learn something on top of HTTP that's like this different thing. But no, it's actually built on HTTP and is commonly used with the protocol buffer definitions, which is just what your message looks like in the communication between two applications. And you can use it for like regular response requests. It actually opens a stream and you can also use it for like just plain streaming. So I go into that and I go into why we decided to go with gRPC and protocol buffers at NAV. And we do have a lot of applications in different languages in our backend. And at the time we were trying to decide, should we put like GraphQL interfaces on our backend services and then just kind of have the front and talk to those? Or should we have all backend communication be in gRPC that, and then that gets translated into GraphQL at an API gateway, which then the front end consumes. And that's kind of what we decided. And we have this thing called our nav engineering standards and it kind of became a standard. So then everything from there has to follow the standard. So now our standard mode of communication for backend services is in gRPC. So I also kind of go into how to set it up in Elixir with Pokemon example. We define our mess where messages are going to look like. And then we generate code from our proto repo from our proto definitions. We generate the Elixir code, and then we import that code into both our client and our server apps. And then we have those communicate to each other via gRPC. And then I kind of just like summarize what are the pros and cons of both. And yeah, it's kind of the gist of it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that overview. I know I am definitely always interested to kind of talk about how teams and organizations decide on gRPC in particular. And so you guys, you mentioned that you landed on this as the standard for all backend communication, like around the various services that make up your system. So yeah, why? Why gRPC? So because we had in, we had this monolithic app that we started breaking down into smaller services, we started having a lot of microservices that had different interfaces. And it was kind, kind of hard to have to be aligned and have enough documentation among teams and people on what the interfaces look like, where the, the services provide, and all that stuff. So when you have protocol buffers, you can have all those definitions in one repo, and then the engineers can collaborate on those domain objects and decide what it really looks like. So it's pretty nice when you are kind of like trying to figure out what your objects look like. You can you know, have a merge request with a new object and you feel that an object and you can collaborate, hey, does this really belong on this domain object? Can we move it to here? So that collaboration between teams or within the team, it's really great. So that was one of the things that we decided on because it was just better for us to have it in one living place, all this self-documented basic, basically API contracts. We had tried JSON with Swagger Docs before, and it kind of like gets outdated. We did choose GraphQL, and that's pretty great, so that we use that for something else. I mean, for edge services, but it was that self-documenting aspect of it too that kind of sold us on it. And then uh, we also like that it decouples the interface from the implementation. For example, I actually worked on something earlier this year where we we're separating one of one of our Elixir apps. It's getting kind of big, so we decided to take a chunk out of it and have it communicate via gRPC. So two Elixir apps communicating. And at first we actually did, we wrote our gRPC def, uh, protocol definitions and then we had the, talk, the app talk to itself via gRPC until we moved that code out. And all we needed to do then was like replace that, what local host, I mean, what host was talking to. And that was it. So you just move the code out and then it just changed the address and then they could communicate it. That made it very easy for us to swap services, basically. And finally, I think one of the great things is to just get that client library that is auto-generated. So you don't have to worry about like parsing. You get your type, secure types, and you can just get out of that out of the gate without writing any like client library within your app. That's just some of the main reasons why we did it. 
Uh, from an operations perspective, do you have to like synchronize the deployment of services depending on when protobuf definitions change? Or is that kind of not an issue because you version them differently? How do you guys go about solving that problem? So the way we have it set up is we have one repo that is the protocol buffers definitions repo. So this is just in basically, basically protofiles. And that lives on its own repo. So when, and this is the, the uh, repo where we collaborate and write comments on and when they get merged. Then we would go into a second step. It's for example, I'm gonna have this Go app communicate with this Elixir app with this new definition. So then we go into the Go app and we have a Go project just for the Go proto definitions. And then we have an Elixir product project just for the Elixir proto definitions. So I would go into the Go project and basically regenerate the files and then commit that and have it. And then we version it with like the Git tags, just next version, for example. So then I go into the Go app that's gonna actually provide the server and then you update the version of the package. So then you get your new proto definition there. And then for the Elixir app, you would go and regenerate the Elixir code, commit it, push. And then on the Elixir app that's gonna be consuming that service, you would just like update the package there to the new version and then that will have consume. So as far as deployment synchronization, you do have to deploy your server first, it's gonna provide that field and then the client. We just haven't run into any issues with that just because every time you add a new field, um, it's usually one app that's gonna provide it and the other one that's gonna consume it and then others might consume it later. But at the time it's usually done because one of the apps meets that field. It would work a little bit differently if you were something, but it's not very common to deprecate stuff in gRPC. We would use reserve fields for that. So for example, if you had a high sub Pokemon and you wanted to get rid of it, and that was field number three, then you would just say reserve field three so it couldn't be used in the future. So that way you wouldn't break clients that was still maybe expecting three, for example. Gotcha. And after you guys, I guess, transitioned from a JSON API to a gRPC, did you notice any performance uh, behavior changes? Were, were things way faster, way slower? How did that look like? I don't think we have benchmarked our, the communication between when it was JSON and when it was gRPC. So I don't think I could provide any insight on that. So it sounds like you guys, you have like a dedicated packages, like a Go package and an Elixir package that serve the built protobufs like to the application that reads and writes those protobufs? Is that what you're describing? Yeah, so it'd be nice if we have, yes, we do have different about, so we have our main proto repo where the definitions live and then we have one for each language. So Golang has its own proto repo, Elixir, Python, and that's just the generated code from the proto repo. So we actually do this pretty manually right now. So you have to pull in, for example, the Elixir repo and then run the uh, proto compiler command to generate from the proto repo into that Elixir proto repo, basically. And then that gets imported into the Elixir apps by just updating the package. Yeah, I really, I think that's a really nice solution. Like the importing it by just updating the package uh, feels like a great way to solve that problem. And I think you maybe started to mention this a moment ago, but any thoughts on automating this process, perhaps with GitHub Actions? I'm really eager to see people using GitHub Actions for this and have had good experience with it on my own team, not so much for like gRPC message management, but just for general workflows. So yeah, any thoughts on automation? I want to do it really bad because it would be nice that every time we committed to our proto repo that all of our language ones would actually update and regenerate with every that would be very virtual cool. quest to master. It would be great. Yeah. We haven't figured out how to do that in GitLab. Maybe GitHub would be better, but GitHub actions, I think, would be a good solution. And I'm only slightly biased towards them. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. On a previous episode, we had Steven commit to I think user support on basically anything on all Codespace. of GitHub. Yeah. Well, I said get code spaces for me and then everything else, Sophie. I think that's what we oh, said. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, no, that's yeah, pretty much great. pull I'm request totally issue. Ready. Yeah. Enterprise, definitely enterprise. Get definitely get enterprise. Yeah. Add Sophie to Benedetto on everything. <laughs> what mean, I was going to ask is yeah. uh, are you going to cover GitHub Actions for us? Because I have some questions, uh, <laughs> notes, and thoughts. Oh, yeah. Give me all your feedback. 
I'll be your direct line. Sweet. Yeah, the automation story is kind of interesting, I think, for Sophie and I. So a little bit of background. Sophie and I developed asynchronous messaging framework uh, that used protobufs to send messages over Rabbit. And then, you know, decoded on both ends to, to enforce that contract. So all the great stuff that we're doing with, if you're talking about with gRPC, contracts, distribution. But one of the things we were really trying to figure out was that automation story. Because we wanted to make it so that you can generate, you write your protobufs in one place and then you sort of like magically disperse it to like the Ruby gem and the Elixir project. And we, could, we didn't get quite there, uh, but there's definitely something there. I, I understand why you, you're interested in the project because it would be very cool and you would definitely be a hero because I can guarantee you everyone hates updating those protobufs and maintaining the version and like tagging it the right way. So Yeah, we actually have had issues. Well, I personally haven't had any issues regenerating the Elixir version of the proto, but with Go, I actually had a lot of issues with the proto compiler not being the right version that another developer was using. And, and if the, since we're doing everything locally, if someone has a proto compiler version that's different than yours, you might get differently generated files. So we can put that in a Docker file. I actually did put it in a Docker file to prevent that from happening in the future. But if we could just leave that all and built it into the pipeline, that's like my dream. So hopefully it will happen soon at NAV and we just have just a matter of prioritizing and making that thing happen for now. I guess we're just manual. I do wonder how Google is rolling this because I, I've run a microservice architecture that used this was protobuf2 a while back. And the same thing, like updating these, making sure it's distributed to everything that needs it. So we were using uh, Git sub modules, which is always straight pleasure. And then we were like running Ansible against these boxes to just make sure they got updated when they were redeployed. But but then like if you can do it automatically, I don't imagine Google is doing anything of it, any of it manually. And I wonder what their strategy is for like deprecating fields and keeping them up to date, that sort of thing. Yeah. And since gRPC it's kind of one of the newer a newer technology, is it's hard to find documentation on how others are doing it. I think if as a community we could collaborate more and kind of help each other out and how we're doing these type of things, it would really help out. It seems like you're a very polyglot environment with many different languages at your company. Do you think that gRPC is a useful choice for someone running a pure Elixir stack? Or would you say that at that point you probably don't need it? Because it makes a lot of sense to me from crossing language boundaries to have this sort of service service library to normalize between them. But would you recommend it for someone running a pure Elixir stack or something like that? I think it would really depend on what pain points you're having, even as an Elixir only uh, language stack. Because even though, yeah, the protocol buffers provide like a common language for apps in different languages, you know, and developers just need to know protocol buffers. There's like all the other benefits that come with it, right? So if if you want to have the collaboration part of it in your proto definitions, if you want to have self-documented interfaces, if you want to separate your implementation from your interface, if you want the building streaming on off, you know, and if you want to have that all and you have an Elixir stack, I don't see why you wouldn't use it. And it will be just a tad bit easier because you could actually have your pro-definitions with your generated Elixir code live in the same repo. So you would actually not have to update your language repo all the time every time your protodefs get updated. So I think it depends on, yeah, your pain points and uh, what you want your architect architecture to look like. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds reasonable. I feel like another question or debate that's very much related to, you know, would you use gRPC with all Elixir or with, you know, a, a single language stack is when to kind of reach for something like gRPC, which is, of course, synchronous versus asynchronous messaging, because a lot of the tooling kind of shared, right? Like certainly leveraging part of messages to keep message contracts and sync around the world of your system. So yeah, curious for your thoughts, Catalina, or really anyone here on uh, the sync versus async messaging debate. Yeah, so our communications is mostly synchronous. We have thrown around the asynchronous communication 
we might use it in the future. But as for now, we have just basically committed to if we do use asynchronous communication, that we will use protocol buffers for our serialization of those messages. So yeah, if you guys have any any more input on that, since I haven't worked with a lot of asynchronous messages, what do you guys think? So Sophie and I actually did a, a class at ElixirConf this year on this, on building essentially a strategy for bringing in Greenfield Elixir applications using asynchronous messaging. And some of the arguments that we made for why you would use it is, the big one to me is system availability. The problem with that we, I guess, posited or put forward was if you have you know, one call to your service that requires two calls to two other services, your system is only as available as your code for that main app plus the availability of those other applications. So building asynchronous systems with read models of local data allows you to have that, I guess your availability can be higher by the nature that you don't necessarily need at runtime to call some other system. It's the same risk we accept whenever we call out to a third-party system that we don't own, right? You may call us a GitHub or Stripe or whatever, like our service can suffer. Of course, there are ways around it. But that was one thing that that was one thing that we use as an argument, which was you get independent systems that uh, may be delayed if another system is down, you know, you're emitting events, and you don't know that this, you know, someone checked out the cart because the cart service went down or something went down with the messaging system. But your system is as good as the facts that it was able to integrate up until that point which was, I think, a pretty compelling argument. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. I think a lot of the time it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. I mean, sometimes asynchronous communication just won't be possible because you need to respond to, let's say, the client's browser. It's really, really tough to do in an asynchronous fashion or else you're going to have a whole bunch of things happening in the back end to try to synchronize this asynchronous stuff. Unless you uh, have some sort of, let's say, WebSocket-powered web framework that could push updates to your client at the drop of a hat as soon as data is available. Now we're talking. I'm not following. (laughs) Is is there a thing? Is that possible? It's really wild. I know. Is that possible? I'm just using my imagination. Yeah, I mean, for the times you can reach for it, yeah, like Stephen and and Sophie alluded to, it definitely does make things a lot easier from a reliability standpoint because now you can deal with they retries a lot easier if you're using a message queue. Sometimes those messages will go back, you know, in the queue if they don't get processed. So there's there's some fault tolerance that comes along with using a lot of these asynchronous tools. But yeah, to rewind a little bit. I think I think like the message format story still like still needs a little bit of uh, research and uh, experimentation. I would like to see you know things kind of pushed forward on that front and you know synchronizing these message formats or versions between message formats. Uh, I think would be very interesting. So we've talked about all the times we would use gRPC and, and protobufs. Do you have any suggestions as to when you should stay away from uh, gRPC and protobufs you know, in, a, in an application? Yeah, I mean, if if you don't really have a complex or just backend services that kind of need that common communication, if maybe you have like a smaller application or you're actually providing response that's directly to the browser, you really can't use gRPC, I would probably suggest using like GraphQL for something for the edge. At least that's what we do. As far as other use cases where it wouldn't be a good idea, don't know. I'm not super sure because we've had such a good experience with it so far. The only thing that's really been bad is when you don't have nil. which is something we run into. We're like, oh, this is just going to send me a null field. But null doesn't really exist in gRPC or, I mean, in protocol buffers, right? So you have to come up with things like a nullable string type, a nullable int type. Well, that's a way of doing this. You could have a type that is nullable. Or you can have protocol buffers have this one type called one of. So it's basically you can, you only get returned one thing and it could be one of the types that you define in your profile kind of like maybe like the union type if you use GraphQL. I'm having a hard time comparing it with others. But yeah, that was a little bit of a bump in the road, but you can get through it. So 
I don't know if that will be like a stopper for using gRPC and protocol buffers, but it was it was a nice it was not a nice surprise when we run into it. I have an absolutely critical question that is how did you decide on Pokemon as the domain for the talk? Because the whole talk is centered around Pokemon. <laughs> I was playing a lot of Pokemon Sword at the time, and I've always used the Pokemon API for examples just because it's so rich and easy to use. So yeah, I guess you can tell that I'm kind of a fan and I thought enough people would know about it. So it wouldn't be like any friction, but then I've actually found out there's some people that don't even know what a Pokemon is. So that was uh, surprising, but I mean, different times. Oh dear, that is surprising. (laughs) So in that case, you've apparently done our community a great service by continuing to spread the word about Pokemon. The Pokemon API is great, though, for anyone who doesn't know about it. It's just what, like a free, I think it's free, right? RESTful API that serves Pokemon data. And if you're looking for just like a fun data source for side projects, it's definitely a great one. Yeah, we should definitely put this in the show notes because I keep using the, the Hacker News API for tutorials and blog posts. And I'm getting kind of tired of using the same API over and over again. So I think I want to mix it up a little bit. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna hop on this Pokemon bad bandwagon. Yeah, this is a Star Wars API. I mean, it's a, it's, it's out there. You know, people yeah, have I was way going. so much time putting together these data stores of information you didn't know you wanted until now. Yeah, I mean, we used to collect this stuff like for our students too, because you know you want to give them fun things to do and build projects out of. So I think that's how I found out about the Pokemon API, the Star Wars one, um, other stuff like that. I was hoping to go with a whole line of questioning here, like, oh, have you been happy with your choice of uh, Pokemon as an organization? And like, (laughs) just repeat anything we've asked about gRPC, but about Pokemon. But now it feels like Alex is going to give Pokemon a whirl, and I think we'll hear, hear back from him about his experiences implementing Pokemon. So... I honestly thought I was super unoriginal choosing the Pokemon API because I feel like maybe everybody uses it. I don't know. It's <laughs> something I've always used. So I thought maybe more people know about it. I think I've seen it before, but I don't think it's that common. So I think it was a good choice. Yeah. On that topic of the of the talk, like what was it like giving... This was your first talk, right, Catalina? That's right. What was it like giving a talk for, I guess in the world of a pandemic? Do you have any advice for first-time conference speakers? Yeah, what are your thoughts? So I kind of decided the day of the proposals closing that I wanted to give a talk on gRPC and Elixir. It was kind of a last-minute thing, but I had been working it for like the last few months and I was like, this is actually really cool. I wonder if other people are doing the same. And it was kind of that curiosity of, are other people using like, similar things like this? Do people even know that the, that this exists and can be done and how well it can work out for an organization? I'll stress again that how nice it's been to have those domains just live in one place and being able to collaborate with the team. But yeah, I think for first-time speakers, it's just something that you're passionate about, that you're pretty excited about, that you feel like you could give back to the community. I do have some blog posts because I've always... I love Elixir and it's hard to find learning or anything around Elixir sometimes. And it was a commitment to help out new Elixir learners to write more blog posts. I've been kind of bad at it for like the past few years, just because I've had like less energy to do that kind of stuff. But I was really excited about this gRPC and Elixir topic. I thought it might be good since I hadn't seen it in any of the other Elixir conferences to talk about it. I think maybe some people don't think about it just because you might assume that gRPC is more for like like Go since kind of like, what does the G even stand for? You know, like I actually was researching it because I always thought it was Google, but apparently then it was, they started coming up with a new word for each new version. I think it's still kind of up in the air for me what it really means, the G and gRPC, but it also helped me a lot learn more about the subject. So for if you're a first-time speaker and you want to talk about something, the best way to learn something is to research it and teach it to people. So that was really great for me. And the virtual conference seemed like a great step from never having done it to doing the first talk, just because it's a little bit less intimidating when you're behind a screen, talking to yourself in a Zoom meeting, basically with a host, rather than going into a stage 
in talking to all these people you don't know that might know more than you. But I had a coworker give me great advice saying that, hey, the crowd is rooting for you. They're not trying to like fun of you or hoping you fail. So that really like stuck with me. And I think the literature community is really great. I've, I've always had a good time talking to people and they're really supporting and nice. So had that all kind of like internally thinking about that before I did my talk and I think it went great and I would definitely uh, do it again if you know we're ever over with this pandemic um, and we can meet all in the same room again and it'd be great to do it in front of people. Yeah. That's all really good to hear. I totally agree that the best way to learn something is to teach it to other people and whether it's through writing a blog post or taking that step to give a talk. It's just really nice to hear other people sort of feel that way and promote it. And yeah, I would love to see, you know, more newcomers and beginners in the Elixir community continue to to write and talk. Not to say that you're like a beginner or a newcomer, but I think you're certainly encouraging people to do this. So yeah, let's see more of that. I did have one more question on the topic of GRPC and Elixir specifically. And this is, I guess, really for anyone, but do we feel that Elixir lends itself perhaps particularly well to GRPC or like microservices in general? What I have liked so far about Elixir with the GRPC is you kind of get the structs of the like generated. So you don't have to like create a struct for the response that you get back. It's already in a struct and ready to use, you know, with its fields. And then you have your guarantee types. You're always guaranteed to get something back. And you can actually use pattern matching once you have, you know, your well-defined data. So you can have like expectations and function pads for what kind of response you're getting and immediately just kind of write logic from there by just having that guaranteed response coming back when you're uh, on your client. And also just like the client libraries are really easy to use. Uh, All you need to do is just like establish a channel and you GRPC with JSON, I've heard, but I've we have never tried that. I think it's usually commonly paired with the protobuf. So I, I don't have any insight on how it works with JSON. But with the protocol buffers, it's been great just because of things I mentioned about the structs being generated and having like these guaranteed responses and fields. And that was actually one of the things I wish I had when I was rewriting the Ruby on Rails app into Elixir. We had to right, comply with the REST contract that the Ruby on Rails app was providing. So when you have those REST endpoints, your types can be anything, and then you can forget to put in a field, and then you mess up the whole entire response. So having, if we would have had gRPC to begin with, it would have been a lot easier to swap those applications before. But just because you have that contract already, it, it just makes it really easy to write the Elixir server and the client. And I, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah I, I think- totally agree that pattern matching, Elixir's pattern matching makes it really elegant when you're writing gRPC servers and request response. Um, and it's also great to hear that you feel like the client libraries are, are really robust and easy to work with. But I didn't mean to cut you off, Lars. Go ahead. Yeah, no worries. I think there's, there's a sort of, a sort of conflict in using Elixir in a microservice environment because you sort of set aside some of the really interesting things that are unique to Elixir, like the the core of uh, Erlang distribution or that sort of clustering and how Elixir is distributed by it, by its very core. But at the same time, it's just as suitable as Ruby or Python or even more suited than them uh, for being a service in polyglot ecosystem. But I think I think there's a challenge there where if you're running a polyglot system, you probably don't want to lean too heavily on very Elixir-specific things, very OTP-specific things. Supervision trees, you, you can absolutely use those, but you probably don't want to use the clustering. You probably don't want to run your service in that particular way because nothing else in your system runs like that. Um, and I think that there's a dynamic there where where it can be hard to know if, like, do we want to go all in on the model that Elixir provides us or do we want to uh, build a polyglot system where we can 
use the sort of normal shared nothing model or other database-backed model where Elixir is so good with stateful. Uh, I think there there's something there that can definitely confuse people because there's not just one choice. Um, and I, I think that's where where I see some of the some of the challenges with just like microservice architectures and Elixir because you can build your entire service like architecture inside a Beam application, but you could also pull it apart into tons of different services and Elixir would allow it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes down to like whether or not you have other stuff that's not like not Beam based on your like as part of your ecosystem. If you're taking over kind of like Catalina mentioned, like a Ruby app, then it makes sense to be cautious about buying, getting all in on Elixir and rather the Beam if when communicating between applications. That said, I mean, I think that between there's a world where you know, you can consider a cluster of Elixir applications as sort of like a private entity and those can communicate with distributed, taking advantage of some of the distributed features. I know I've done stuff where like I've had an app that just exists to kind of collect stats on the cluster and just fire things off. And I wouldn't send that out, you know, over asynchronous messaging or expose an endpoint for it. But for all intents and purposes, they were separate applications running inside of almost their own little cluster talking their own secret twin language, which I which I think has its place. Yeah, that's interesting and absolutely true. I, I think where it gets tricky is probably that you just have more options with Elixir. And some of the options might not be entirely clear to you at the time you're making them. Uh, you have... You have all the possibilities and a few you might not have in other languages and other runtimes. And sometimes choice is a big challenge, especially if you don't already know what all the consequences are. Yeah, I think we have experienced some of that. I feel like, Lars, you're exactly right. You get from microservices, like built in. For example, we had like a task that kind of ran on a gen server and updated some stuff, but that's not exactly clear to someone coming in from like a Go land or a Ruby land um, into Elixir. So we've actually had to kind of push, kind of take a step back and try to think of, okay, what is like the Kubernetes way of doing this? Just because we use Kubernetes and when you use Kubernetes, you can probably run, run a cron and that would be how the rest of the apps are doing it, like our Go apps and our Ruby apps. So we have to actually go back on this elixirly things that we're doing just to make it more like like the rest of the apps are doing it so it's more universally understandable by all the engineers at the company which yeah so that sounds like a good choice from an organizational perspective but it's also like a little saddening to see elixir needing to be jammed into this box where <laughs> of what other language and other runtimes can actually achieve but I think that's absolutely the correct choice in just constraining a little bit the unexpected stuff that can be done with, with Elixir and the Beam so that people that are new and need to approach the system can do that in a fairly consistent way. Yeah, I've definitely seen this as well in, in production where even though we have all these facilities available to us, we have to kind of go down to the, you know, the common denominator across the infrastructure and all the other apps. Because you know, for whatever reason, you know, we deploy to target X. X doesn't support some of these features that we rely on in, in Beamland, and we just we just can't use those things. We cry a little bit inside, but uh, you know, we, we go along with it. But it is amazing how many things we could do inside the Beam, and uh, like how easily we could test these things. So when when you brought up like cron jobs and Kubernetes, I was immediately thinking, man, that that's that's so much easier to do in a Gen server, and I can write amazing X unit tests, and I can you know with very very high level confidence make sure that this is all working. Now, if I try to do this in you know uh, in a Kubernetes context and I have to use their their cron uh, stuff, how do I how do I go about testing that? Do, do I have that high degree of confidence again that it's working as I intend? Versus if I did an Elixir, I know you know I know it'll work. So, just food for thought. Yeah, and we do have there is a library for clustering, even within Kubernetes. So actually, our we are running like a few pods of our Elixir app. And then they know which pod is kind of like the master pod just because you can leverage the this cluster library just to kind of make it seem elixirly, but 
not really, you know? So there are some tooling that kind of helps, but it's still really, yeah, really sad that we have to, you know, live in the box. Is this a lib cluster from Bitwalker that you guys are using? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I've used on the past as well with, with good luck. It's always a library from Bitwalker. It always is. Always. Right? <laughs> One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. So I think that's as good a note as any to transition us into picks. Since we're coming to the end of our time together today, we'll just go around Robin and I'll kick it off with Alex. Any picks for us? Yeah, sure. So my four or five-year-old workstation has finally been decommissioned. And as most uh, desktops, it is now my home server, but I needed to replace it with something. So I just built a brand new 3950X uh, AMD desktop. I feel like I can run all the gen servers you know, when I open up Observer and there are 32 lines bouncing around from all the cores. So I, I, I can feel super productive now. It's amazing. So my first pick is my Ryzen 3950X. And then the other one is a blog post on the uh, Erlang blog. It's a uh, brief introduction to Beam. And it's an interesting read. And it kind of goes into you know how the runtime works, some of these uh, new features coming in OTP24. So definitely interesting. Recommend reading it. Awesome. Thank you. Any picks from you, Lars? Sure. This one was prompted by Steven and Alex before the show. There's a Mac app called Webcam Settings, which allowed me to take my Logitech C920, decent but not new webcam, and actually control the settings on it uh, without installing very weird Logitech apps. So I recommend that. It's a paid app. I don't think it was very expensive. I don't recall exactly. And then apparently people have missed that I run a new newsletter. So underyou.io, my site, has a newsletter and it doesn't aggregate news in the way that all these good, good Elixir radars and uh, status updates and uh, summaries do, the digests and whatnot. We already have a lot of newsletters that do that. But, so it's mostly more of my writing. But if that sounds like something you want go to my site and sign up. It's in the footer. Cool, and thank you. I know I enjoy your newsletter, so I recommend it to others. Any picks from you, Stephen? Yeah, I got a, I got a couple of bangers. Okay, so the first one is a gem. I know, I know, blasphemy, called Packwork, which I'm totally mispronouncing, I'm sure. It's spelled P-A-C-K-W-E-R-K. It's a gem from Spotify. I'm sorry, Shopify, not Spotify. It's a way of introducing modularity into Rails applications. So one thing I love about working in Elixir is the idea of a context and those boundaries that we can enforce. There are other packages on Elixir that sort of are a little more shouty. This kind of mimics that. So it'll enforce boundaries between your different packages. I'm doing air quotes, but no one can see that. And it makes it so you can actually start to build these modular apps and it'll check whether or not you're crossing boundaries. I think it's a really cool concept. Uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have some writing done on it, experimenting with some stuff. But I think that it shows a lot of promise. And the other one is, I think this came out of SpawnFest, Bakeware. If you haven't heard of this, you need to hear about this. One of the things that people usually rail on Elixir and Erlang applications is, oh, with I can deploy a Go application with a single executable, drop it on a server and start it, and that's it. With an Elixir app, I have like a release and there's like a directory and like a start script. With Bakeware, you can take an Elixir project and convert it to a single executable that you can export and drop on a server. I think it's kind of cool. Check those two things out. Steven out. This looks really cool. I just pulled it up. Is it kind of nervesy? I see Frank Humla, John Carson's contributing. The, the demo on for Bakeware, the demo on it is they do like a live view application, they do like a counter app. So it's pretty much... Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, it's very, very cool. I told you, bangers. These are good things. Yeah. Let's make something. Okay, anyway, um, I have some picks oh, yeah. as well before we move it over to Catalina. Uh, just two. So GitHub's the engineering blog or overall blog has just launched a new series from our engineering organization on the topic of building GitHub. And we're going to be publishing a series of posts over the next couple of weeks and months, kind of giving people like an inside look at how we solve some of the 
I think most interesting challenges of such a large engineering organization, uh, things like developer tooling and happiness. So we kicked off our series this past week with our intro post and a post on how we improved our CI times by, I think, 3x. So I think that's going to be a pretty interesting series. Definitely recommend checking it out. And some of our authors are some really cool, smart people, and I would love to share what they're working on. And my other pick is definitely not programming related. It is dog related. So my dog, as those of you who see me on Zoom know, is generally to be found completely passed out on the couch behind me. Obviously, this is a podcast, so our listeners can't actually see him, but you guys can see him. And this couch is blue. It's dark blue. The dog is white. He leaves his fur all over it. So I have purchased, it hasn't arrived yet, this like, I think it's going to be like a queen size blanket covered in fur, not real fur, specifically for dogs. So like machine washable and waterproof. I'm going to throw that thing on that couch and hopefully he's going to love it. So stay tuned, but I think it's going to be a big hit. And uh, that's it for me. And Catalina, any picks, anything you want to share with our audience? Certainly no worries if not. Sure. So like I told you guys, I was obsessed with coding back in the day. I mean, I'm still obsessed with coding, but a little bit more on the side projects. And I built a uh, basically like a vegan recipes website on Phoenix two years ago. So I have, if you guys are looking for any vegan recipes, the URL is planforplants.com. It's all built. It's not very optimized for web and I haven't spent a lot of time in it lately. So it might not be super fast or anything like that. It only has like 10 recipes, but it's in the works and I might get back into it. So if you guys want to check that out and it's pretty, (laughs) I used a bootstrap theme because I am not good at designing or doing CSS and HTML. So I'm a backend engineer, you know, so I just try to try my best, but I think that's it for my picks. If you guys want to check that out. Excellent. Well, thank you for your picks. Thank you for joining us. This has been a great conversation and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.